This is the Blossom of Thought podcast, a podcast about the body, mind, and soul. And your host is Impilo Kambule. Today we are recording on class struggle in Swaziland, pre and post independent Swazi social economic conditions. And joining me for a conversation today is Pius Vilagati. And I will have him introduce himself. Usually I have people. I usually just lay out their CV and who they are and what they do. But today I will just turn it over to him. Pius, over to you for introductions. Uh, thank you so much, Bilo, and uh, thanks for having me in this discussion. As you have said, my name is Pius Bilagati. I am the International Secretary of the Communist Party of Swazi, exiled in South Africa, having been exiled since 2010. At that time, uh, when I was exiled, I was the SRC president at the University of Swaziland, as it was known then. So I've been in the struggle for democracy in Swaziland like, since my university days, practically. And we are now serving in the Communist Party of Swaziland. Mr. Vilagati, I want us to talk about this subject, which is quite uh, interesting and uh... Uh, I think it is important that we lay such a record for the people of Swaziland and those who are interested, who are comrades, who are interested in seeing a better Swaziland, a more democratic Swaziland. I want us to go to history. You know, there are issues or there are two systems in the world for politically or economically. We have uh, the capitalist system, we have got uh, socialist systems. And these have been uh, side by side, maybe going back to the 1500s. But I want us to talk about uh, Swaziland having Europeans uh, coming in and introducing the capitalist system. They were having their own selfish interest and uh, they have an arm of capitalism, which is uh, uh, colonialism. So they came to colonize the Swazis. I want us to go back and speak about pre-colonial era in Swaziland. What were the socio-economic conditions in Swaziland when the Europeans arrived? If we look at the history of Swaziland, of course it is connected to the history of the entire Southern Africa in terms of the lives that they were living then. And of course that is also linked to another history going back many hundreds and thousands of years before then. But we'd have to look at... uh, that pre-colonial Swaziland, at least that era just before uh, colonialism. Because what we see then, sometimes African thinkers, they describe or they describe uh, pre-colonial Africa as if it was some harmonious, happy, all society. But we have to notice that, yes, at that time, the organization of the people was along tribal or ethnic lines. And we'll have to look again at the way they used to produce their means of subsistence and how they they related to production. Because that's how we have to understand them in terms of how were their relations of production and exchange. And we find that a lot of their production was more communal and therefore their lifestyle was communal. Although already we already had chiefs and kings, um, but based on on clans, we had ruling clans 
and other clans which were ruled. But the form of ownership was materially different from the form, the ownership as known under capitalism. Because under capitalism, the ownership is more individual. Individual rights are more emphasized compared with the era before colonialism in Swaziland where group rights are more emphasized than individual rights. The individual is a part of the group rather than the group merely being more free to express themselves. So you had also had that situation where um, you had a communal life under a tribal chief or a king, whatever it would have been at that time. So that's how people related at the time. And therefore, when, when colonialism was coming in in trips and trips, the colonialists or the future colonialists are coming in and finding this mode of ownership where it's more communal, where more group rights are respected than individual rights. And for them, it's, it's, it's alien. But for us, this side is the way of life. One of the good things, some of the good things that come with communal life is that the interests, so the interests of everyone in the community are catered for. The interests of the individuals that are living within the group are catered for, whether you talk about the basic rights such as food, water, shelter, clothing, and so on, they are largely catered for. But already the elements of social inequality are already planted because, like I said, already they are ruling clans. So in Swaziland, you have, for instance, the Zamini clan um, having conquered Swaziland or the territory then, which was which would then be known as Swaziland later. And before them, it's important for us to remember that there were other people before the Zaminis conquered Swaziland, before Ngwane III conquered Swaziland from 1745. So there were other people living in there. And that era, of course, is the era of the beginning of battles in, in competition for resources, whether it's water, it's livestock, uh, land, and so on. So you do have battles within the, that scenario. And Are those the Mfekane Wars, or that's later? Yes, which leads to the Mfekane Wars later. So you do have the, the wars starting up, because now with the Mfekane Wars, now that's when, I would say, the height of those wars. Um, so you have that, that competition for, for land and other resources, because... Sometimes the, the colonialists would spread the, the, the propaganda that Africans, all they know is just to kill themselves just for fun. And sometimes uh, kings like Shaga are just depicted as these people who just loved to fight and to kill, which is wrong because that type of description is devoid of the material conditions of the people at the time. Because remember that Population growth, the, the, the influence of population growth within all the groupings that were in southern, southern Africa also means that you, are, you need more land to build. You need more land for, for grazing. 
and you need water for your tribe. In the process, there's going to be competition for those material realities, for those resources. Hence, the wars started up. But of course, even at that point, you still, a commun- you still have a communal approach to daily living. And one takeaway from that, I think it's just apparent. Africans are known for the spirit of Ubuntu. That's what we call it today, where group rights are more important than individual rights. So you advance more the collective rights uh, more than the individual. The individual um, individualism, it's more of a, a European concept or an outside concept is not African. Because in Africa, we speak of Ubuntu, I am because you are, because you are, therefore I am. I think that's the philosophy that details that. The colonizers, they came in trips and traps, as you were saying. How are they also not only just integrating with the Swazis, how are they able to overcome many resistance? Because there are lies that go out here today that colonized people, they just submitted to some kind of demigods that came from Europe and they never resisted. While all of our history shows serious resistance. But how did that happen in Swaziland? There's different ways, in fact. There's the other aspect where Europe itself had serious wars. They were having many wars in Europe. And some of the Europeans actually were escaping Europe. They they got to Africa because they were escaping wars from, from Europe. So some of them, it was a matter of escaping those wars. And then there was the other aspect, however, the question of the spread of capitalism. You remember 1652, Jan van Riebeck is one uh, popular case, in, especially in our southern part of Africa, mm. how he got to the Cape and then started uh, trading with the communities that were there. From the side of the Europeans, is the constant search for, for markets. It's a constant search for, for resources. Now, when they are passing through uh, the Cape, they're able to get, uh, to take a rest there and then also trade with the, the people there. But now, from the African perspective of the time, we have a situation where they are more communal. So the trade that they are, do, they are having is markedly different from the approach of the Europeans. And so the Africans are more welcoming to strangers. So you, you do not become homeless just because you are a stranger. And that's one aspect which the Europeans uh, used to take advantage of the land. And remember from the European perspective with, with the, the interpretation of or property rights, from their aspect, property rights are private rights, so are privately owned. From the African perspective, nothing can ever be uh, privately owned. In fact, private ownership, even as a concept, does not exist for the Africans of the time. So that is one aspect. Are you, sorry, country. just to cut you short, are you relating to uh, natural endowments or you mean even owning a spoon. I just want that clarity there when you say there's nothing like individual, right? You can't own anything in the African context. I just want to make sure that uh, we, we are clear on that one. Yes, you see, there's a difference though, because the sand as well 
they have a different they had a different sense of in terms of property mm-hmm. compared to the bantu when the bantu came mm-hmm. the bantu are in groups and larger groups more organized uh, more advanced uh, tools of production compare that with the sen the sen when it comes to everything that exists for them there's no boundary at all they can they can hunt uh, a giraffe from from job to pretoria to limpopo and come back again so it's, but the because when it comes to the land of the if we say gangwan if say bangwan for instance now everything within gangwan now belongs to the people of gangwan there were the land the forests the rivers and so on so the sense of individual and private ownership is literally subservient uh, in the african context at the time mm-hmm. uh, so you could have in a family maybe that that seat maybe belongs to your father but really it's is nothing major but when it comes to now to the resources they are communally owned the resources that we own the the fields where we we plant our crops so the clan owns that but the sense of ownership is different again from the european aspect karl marx when and engels when they analyze the spread of capitalism from europe uh, in the communist manifesto of 1848 mm. they trace it and they see how it spread to north america the colonization they noted and they also note the round, the rounding of the cape and this is where they see that that actually marked the spread of capitalism and so therefore colonialism is not just colonialism for the fun of it it is actually the spreading of capitalist markets and the the search for more resources because in europe the the space was becoming very small trade routes were becoming a bit congested and that ship of uh, jan van riebeck and others the dutch east india company mm. actually it had because the workforce was slaves largely from asia india indonesia that region mm-hmm. there were slaves and that's partly how many of the people who are of indian origin came to to africa or to the south africa in the main mm-hmm. because they were they were enslaved and when you were a slave it would be for different reasons why you are a slave whether your your father your grandfather owes something to this company and then you have to be a slave in order to to fulfill that uh, debt and so on so there are many of this type of slaves born slave indentured slaves and so on so that's how they come in and then they, they get dumped when they get used they are dumped in south africa so you have that slavery also still lingering in there but those markets were, also, were capitalist in character and that's how they interact with the the africans of the time and what is different again is that the tools of production between the two groups are different you have the europeans with this high level development of the tools of uh, production mechanized uh, later and 
the Africans are still more communal in terms of their production. You still need the whole group to come in and produce. And, and there's no individual owner of the fields and so on. Whereas with the European side, you can have one capitalist owning a factory. And that concept, therefore, now all those loans that are taken from Europe, that are, they're using in Europe, they transplant them into Africa. And that's how the process goes. So that's how they able to penetrate into Swaziland. They're going, they're coming through Cape Town, going up to the Transvaal, as then it was now Gauteng and coming closer to home to Swaziland. And they are bringing all the, the technology that they have, as you say, and enter Swaziland. Any resistance? How did they deal with the authorities and eventually coming together with the, the tribal chiefs or kings of uh, the people of the territory of Swaziland? One of one of the things that the in fact we may call them even the advanced parties for Europe because at the time you find that the conquerors they they do that for their country could be for the king or king King Philip of uh, France or King so and so or Queen so and so of uh, Britain so they wh- whatever they do whatever they discover they report back to their parent state. They come along with the missionaries. The missionaries Mm. themselves are still loyal to their original countries as citizens of that particular country. So if you are to look at the the stories of, for instance, uh, Boshagazu, he also gave them some piece of land here and there for them to, to lead their lives, but also used their tools as well in terms of the fights that were going on at that time. So basically, the, at first, the relations seem smooth, but the intentions are different. The Africans just want harmony with these newcomers. But the newcomers want more land. They want grazing land because over time they get livestock and then they need more grazing land. When they now settle in and they start interacting more with the Swazis, particularly during uh, Banzen's time, King Banzen, in the 1880s. Um, that's when he starts giving them land. But the land is not for them to privately own. Uh, there is a term I learned, they were calling it from the Swazi perspective, Emakotiso, mm. uh, which was mean, meaning of uh, concessionaries. Mm-hmm. So from the Swazi perspective, they give them the land merely to help for them to, to, to graze their livestock, for that, just for grazing. But it's not permanent ownership because from the Swazi perspective, that communal type of ownership and lifestyle still exists. But from the settler's point of view, they read that and say, we are owning this. And that's how bit by bit the land got cut later after some time. Well, I, I want us now to move on to in how they interacted with local authorities and uh, eventually boosted uh, the authority of the chiefs or what they eventually called the paramount chief, which is uh, the, the king in Swaziland. We've spoken about Mbanzani and how they had a misunderstanding in relation to <laughs> 
uh, use and ownership of land, which was more an issue of possession and ownership. The Europeans interpreted that as ownership. Uh, the king here, he was thinking that he's just giving them possession rights. But now I want us to move systematically from their integration with the authorities and how now a capitalist state is established in Swaziland. Can you take us through that and how eventually there is this shifting of their part, feudalism and communalism to capitalism? What the white settlers uh, discovered is that first they were able to, to see from the beginning that there is a dominance of one clan over the other in Swaziland. And it was the Zamini clan. This is why they focused on them as an important partner. So they were partnering with them in terms of the land of Swaziland. Now, but during that time again, there was important discoveries of gold and other uh, minerals. As that, and so forth. That's, that's a bad, that was a key one which literally revolutionized everything. And with the discovery of, of these resources, that's how the British come in full force. And you have the Anglo Boer War of 1899 to 1902. Yeah, yes. Uh, so, which was literally turned into the next century uh, from the 19th century. So the Anglo-Boer War was a fight for resources. And what's happening in this instance is that you have two groups, one originating from the Dutch and that others from the British. They are fighting for land, land which, has, which does not even belong to them. And each of them is utilizing the indigenous population for their own interests, not for the interests of the indigenous population. And when the British uh, win that war, now they take over Swaziland from 1903 and they fully colonize it. Um, they call it protectorate hmm. and because they have to justify it and say the Swazis asked for us to protect them from the Boers. So they call it a protectorate, but still you find that all the elements that take place in a colony, still the same things apply to the protectorate. So you're not better by calling yourself a protectorate than a, a colonized person. So when they take over there, and it's important that we remember, especially as Africans, sometimes we look at colonialism from a very narrow eye. When the British defeated the, 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 the Boers, they actually crushed them. In fact, it's the first, it's, or it's one of the key elements of genocide in Southern Africa, uh, if not the worst, perpetrated by the British on the Africaners. So that is important because it is, it is, a, it is a piece of African history sometimes not attended to. So... If you see later how Hitler um, uses concentration camps, he would he learned it from the British how they treated the the Africaners because that's what they did. What what uh, Hitler did later was actually something on steroids, but learned from the British back then. 
So mm-hmm. this is how now the British first, their first intention was the control of the mines, the mining industry. That's what they wanted to control. Whereas now they relegated the Africaners to the land for grazing, agriculture, and so on. Capitalism, it enters, obviously you have said, when you're talking about colonialism entering in trips and traps, capitalism, it, it, it gets in. How do we get to the class struggle? You know, we were talking about ownership happening in a, in a collective. That's the, the, the spirit of the Africans. Nobody was individually uh, having rights over the land and the natural endowments. How do we then get into the division of, of classes, the bourgeoisie, the proletariat, the peasants? How does capitalism and the capitalists shift uh, the society into uh, the classes? When, when capitalism was actually actually rooted itself in Swaziland, it was characterized by many things. It's because for the capitalists to properly set up their their factories, their farms, and to produce, basically. One thing they needed was land. So they had to dispossess the people, their land. So many people lost their land. So many families uh, lost their land. And the loss of land is not just land for cultivation of their crops, but it is also grazing land. So you're losing not just land, you're also losing the livestock and losing your lifestyle. Therefore, you're losing all the things that you previously used for you to survive, for your family to live. And another thing that got introduced later was the various types of taxes. It would be poll tax, it would be hard tax, even dog tax and others. So now the way that people traded amongst themselves up until then in Africa was not through money. It was more butter trade. So now the, the, the colonialists were now saying they're going to introduce these various types of taxes which had to be paid in money. And because the Switzerland was, was now a territory of Britain, in, in fact. So this was the advancement of British interests into our region. Now, with these taxes, people had to pay them somehow. And one way that they used was they partnered with the local uh, chiefs and the king to get the people to go work in the mines so that they're able to make this money and pay the tax. So that's how now those, the, the proletarianization of people, the people of Swaziland, now they're being transformed from peasant uh, communities now into proletariat. At first, of course, you have a situation where people are, are both. On one hand, you, are, you, are, you, you have to go to the mines. First, you started with men into the mines and to work in the farms, in the farms for months on end. And you're working in there in order for you to, to also provide for your family because 
you've also lost the land. So now you have the pressure of buying food. Now you are becoming a proletariat. You are becoming the working class under capitalist society. So that's how now capitalist exploitation starts. And one benefit which the capitalists were getting from the indigenous working class was that they were getting cheap labor and getting cheap labor because they also had the control of the chiefs to get them to force people to go to work and work and come back to pay these monies. But on the other hand, there were other levies that the the royal aristocracy of Swaziland was imposing on the people. And first, if you remember, do you remember that uh, even the education of Sopuza, uh, the second, was sponsored by the people of Swaziland. So some of these monies, also the royal family was also benefiting on the other side, whilst British capitalism and even the Africaners were also benefiting in terms of labor. So that's how now you find a growing proletariat class in Swaziland now becoming more indigenous from the indigenous population. And at first, of course, you have the capitalists being the colonizers with the the royal family uh, being benefiting from that transaction. I also understand that other than, other than just the people financing the education of King Sopoza, they were also financing the travel of the royal family. And it seems sometimes they were traveling to try and have some negotiations with uh, the capitalist. Was that traveling for the gain of the monarch or was for the gain of the uh, the masses? Yes, because... Uh... That's important as well. Because it seems to me, this thing of traveling, like the present king, he travels a lot. <laughs> it seems like it dates way back, this thing of having the monarch being tourist going all over the world. But I just want to know from which genesis was it for the benefit of the Swazis or was for the aristocrats? On the one hand, you also had the discussions on decolonization. The ideas on decolonization across Africa there were already big ideas. And for Swaziland, for instance, uh, one man who features a lot with the Pixlika Isagaseme, who was helping the various chiefs and kings, as he said, as he claimed, to reclaim land for, for control by the chiefs and the kings. And so he was also able to partner with the Swazis he was a big friend of uh, especially Sopuza, worked with him a lot. So now these travels as well, because they would have to go to Britain a lot to speak with the British, the negotiations. But these travels, whilst the rhetoric, whilst the propaganda is that it's for decolonization, you find that at the heart of it, it's actually meant for the control of the land and the people by the royal family. And at that time, the situation had changed from the pre-colonial era. Already with now having with the trappings of capitalism and the royal family, seeing the benefits of capitalism, particularly for themselves, 
seeing all these opportunities, they were now getting to, to, to discuss with the British, but now not for the return of land to be owned or controlled by the people of Swaziland with or using the pre-colonial style of uh, ownership or lifestyle. So these monies as well, they had to sponsor all these trips. And the, the, the royal family bit by bit was also getting richer and richer because there are so many of them which got misused Whether they talk about the Leafa Fund. The Leafa Fund is older, which led to also the creation of Tibio Tagangwane later. So at some point it got into corruption, it was misused and there was no justice for the people of Swaziland. And as the, the more people were forced into, into work, in the capitalist uh, um, companies. Now, you had a situation where the majority of the people were squashed into one third of the land, whilst the two thirds was commercially owned land. So you had people with, uh, with no land. Literally, the only choice they had was for them to go and be exploited in order for them to earn something. And one of the key aspects of capitalism is that the worker only gets enough for them to return back to work. And it's a vicious cycle. It's a continuing cycle like that, which still continues even today. So that's how you now you find, on the one hand, you have the, um, the big capitalists who, who are, who are foreign-owned uh, foreign and then you have a growing class, indigenous class, but coming from the royal family side, which now becomes the petty bourgeoisie and later would become the, the bourgeoisie, such that even today, if you trace all these uh, indigenous capitalists, the Swazi capitalists, you find that somehow they are related to the royal family or their business has a history of relations with the royal family, plus it's and now with the royal family now, with also its, its links with uh, the, 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 the white settlers. And you see with the 40s, for instance, you get now in the 1940s, you get to a point where it's, we find amongst, it becomes amongst the first industrial actions, amongst the first strikes of Swaziland. Now that become really serious such that uh, the British had to get uh, their army from Kenya to, uh, to transport them to, to crush. Oh, the Highlanders. The, the, the actions, yes. Yes, they had to come and crush them. And the royal family of Swaziland itself, it has interest in that because it needs a, an obedient nation. To an obedient royalty also. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they need that an obedient, a totally obedient population. So the crushing of the Swazis is also beneficial and of interest to the royal family. And that's where you find now more, more and more cooperation between the colonialists and the royal family. While at the same time, of course, the royal family still has interests to end colonialism, but not for the entire population so that it can take over the running of the country from the British. Oh, that's what leads to 
to this uh, land question, agrarian question, and also tribal nationalism, where on the one end the royal family is interested in saying, I think one of the statements that I will read is, we are Swazis before we are Africans. And I remember NLC, which was a political opposition then, they were going with what I believe should be the, the case, that we are Africans before we were Swazis. That created traditions of a hibernating nation, people who are just asleep and they are fo- falling victim to traditions which are to serve uh, the petty bourgeoisie or uh, the, the aristocrats of Swaziland, you know, the traditional uh, rulers, uh, the chiefs and the kings and all those that you refer as petty bourgeoisie. Now, uh, yes. I see that you, you, you were referring to the 40s when they started to be mass action of uh, the proletariat, the working class, and how when they were stunned by this mass action, they turned to King Sopuza, asking him to calm his people, of which he was a little bit loath to do that. And when they came with the Highlanders to crush them, again, the people, they tried to go to King Sopuza and it was, I mean, their plea fell on deaf ears. But I want us now to progress a little bit to the 60s. We get independence in 1968, we have independence constitution, and then it comes down to King Sopuza, 1972, 1973, where he did something that uh, in Swaziland is still crippled, uh, even to date. And that somehow consolidated the power of the aristocrats in Swaziland. Can you take us through that, uh, the legis- legislatively and otherwise leading to where we find these traditional statements such as natural resources, natural endowments are held in trust by the king for the Swazi people? What that meant and how that came about and what that means even today. I, I, I think I've, I've asked a lot of questions at the same time, but I think you are getting, you'll be able to take us through the history. You made an important statement earlier uh, on the difference in terms of conceptualization of what it means being a Swazi and being an African, the distinctions between uh, Sokuza's approach and the NNLC's approach. Because that also had uh, consequences in terms of how uh, the colonialists also cooperated with the royal family and how they now worked together to crush the indigenous political parties, especially in the 1960s, towards the independence of Swaziland and how they continue again to, to partner amongst each other. But also importantly, how they dealt with the African struggles and for ourselves, the struggle for liberation in South Africa, how they dealt with the South African liberation movement. Because the NNLC, uh, for instance, was clear that as a pan-Africanist organization, it was going to continue to help the South African liberation movement to gain its freedom from apartheid. And from the part of Sopuza, um, while he also threw in the rhetoric that he was an African king, he, the white man must not bring his ideas and so on and so forth to, to Swaziland. On the other hand, he played double agent, actually, because while he was 
presenting himself as a friend of the ANC. At the same time, he was clear that there need not be these fights for total liberation. He was saying in his own words that uh, he has not heard how other countries such as Ghana uh, of Kwame Nkrumah, how the people have destroyed things there because they're rejecting the white man and so on. So he had a different approach of accommodating the white settlers. This is one aspect which, uh, which helped strengthen him, especially during the 60s in the discussions uh, of having a constitution for Swaziland and towards independence in 1968. Now, he was also advised by the very same forces, apartheid forces, to form a political party which later, later became the Mbogot for National Movement, the Mbogot for National Movement. So that alliance was key in terms of them becoming the superpower later in, the, in 1968 uh, and beyond. Mm-hmm. So that, that was important also to point out. You also, because in terms of the ownership of uh, the industries, yes, of the role of the, the Colonial Development Corporation, the CDC mm. coming in again. If you follow it through today, it's now uh, their property is now it, it has transformed into the Royal Southern Sugar Corporation and other aspects. So the Royal Southern Sugar Corporation is that history going back to the colonial days. Now you had that partnership now taking the people through to 1968. By 1968, the royal family was the single most powerful force in Swaziland compared with every other forces, especially in the indigenous population. Yeah, let's get, I think that's a fair analysis on that and, and how they, you know, year after year, they're becoming more and more powerful and more exploitative uh, against their own brothers and sisters, their own African brothers, the, the Swazi masses who ended up becoming impoverished just to hoist and have these uh, uh, aristocrats or family being hoisted. As we see today, we still have the case, and that's why they are rising. 1973, there are a lot of political dynamics there. Uh, can you take us through that systematically on the development of the industries? I think at some point, sugar was the main economic driver in Swaziland. We were exporting to Europe. I'm sure there were links between what I think it's uh, Mao Zedong. He calls them the Comrade Pujaji. And this was then the seemingly they had their, they, they had, we had our own Comrade Pujaji, those who are connected to the Pujaji, the capital is really of Europe. So they become that arm of Europe in continuing to oppress the Africans. Take us through that and the actions of King Sopoza, Elizabeth decree or I should say the proclamation with the various decrees, probably just to give a summary on that. Can you take us through uh, that time through 78 and uh, to the coming in of the new king in 1986? Yes. Yeah, because you have the situation where coming all those way, the 60s and the 70s, the NNLC, for instance, was arguing for the ownership of the land, the land and minerals to be returned to the people. But the biggest voices came from the whites who argued that the, those rights must be vested in the Nguanyama, so in the king. Mm, and, mm, mm. and those mineral rights and the land 
became vested in the king, which is the situation that went on from there. Even those rights were even protected in the 1968 constitution. So with that situation, it meant that now when the Imbogotra National Movement won all the elections in the 1967 elections leading to independence, they won 100%. So everyone else who would be opposed to whatever was being passed in parliament was outside, had no voice. But with the NNLC now becoming the opposition in the 1972 elections, now winning three seats out of the 24, and it's unbelievable that only three people uh, could threaten the, the royal family, put them under pressure so much that they saw it necessary to repeal the 1968 constitution with only three people, which is, should be a lesson for us today, for people to understand how serious uh, the regime takes to opposition. Even if you are alone, they will crush you mercilessly. So with that situation now, they were threatened with that. Now, with the, the control of the land, meaning that the royal family has complete control, it means that it stands at a far better advantage to trade even with other forces. Agriculture uh, was the main source of, uh, of revenue uh, for Swaziland, particularly sugar. And in that regard, this is what also made, uh, we remember what they used to say, sugar is real Swazi gold. Yeah, That's yeah. how important sugar has been for Swaziland. Leading now to the, like, like we said earlier, Sokuza was playing a double barrel and with the, or the, the abrogation of the constitution and Sokuza banning all political parties in, on 12 April 1973, bestowing all legislative, um, executive and judicial powers upon himself as supreme ruler. Now, the formalization of the Tinkunda system in 1978 was merely the implementation of uh, monarchical absolutism that is through elections which were selections in reality <laughs> um, and now it led that led to because the apartheid regime supported the royal coup on the constitution they supported it and they gave it a, uh, its their propaganda through SABC radio which they controlled and they're doing it for their own interests by the way very important for people to know because apartheid was already on the back foot with sanctions. So in order for them to be able to circumvent the sanctions, they needed another territory. Swaziland became that territory. In 1982, Sopuza also signed Pretoria Accord. The Pretoria Accord signed between Sopuza and the apartheid regime where Sopuza undertook to not give any space to the South African liberation movement and actually so that Swaziland could not be used by the, the South African liberation movement to launch attacks on the apartheid regime. So by the time he died in 1982, Swaziland was already on the clashes of, clashes of apartheid, but the British themselves, although they did not directly support apartheid, they did not actually oppose the attack on liberation fighters in Swaziland. They did not oppose 
the decree that Sopuza imposed on the people. And if you look at now, um, which should be a thought for us today, if you look at the death of Sopuza between the period between the death of Sopuza and the takeover of Mswati in 1986, Sosvent was tinkering on the brink of civil war, not because of the people, not for the benefit of the people, but because of the internal fights within the royal family for succession. And that's how Mswati came into the power because his faction won that internal war. And that's why I'm saying we should think about that now. Think about how at that time, Swaziland tinkered on the brink of civil war. What's going to happen now with all these interested people within the royal family, whether you talk about Lindani, Skalo, even actually even um, Skanyi herself and all others, and uh, add that to old wars. And with the fact that these, so these children now have been, trained, have been trained militarily, it is not too far-fetched to think or to project Swaziland being a military dictatorship in the future. So these things should be lessons to us. What an analysis on the infightings of the, the royal family and how sugar became, uh, became that foundation upon which the economy of Swaziland will pivot for a number of decades. Um, if we had time, I would love us to talk more about that economic side rather than just uh, sugar, talk about forestry and, and, and all stuff that I'd probably I would have to create another episode on that. Some few questions before we close. Neocolonialism is a real thing. You were celebrating from 1957. We have Kwame Nkrumah beginning with Ghana, getting independence, coming to 1994, South Africa. I'm trying to remember if there is another country that got independence after South Africa. So we've been celebrating uh, independence. And I do not know if we have so much to celebrate about decolonization of uh, the African people. Uh, where I'm going with this is just the interest on neocolonization, where there are some subtler ways where we are recolonized. Let's talk about that with focus on Swaziland, probably as part of the, your, your parting shots, and then how that leads even to the uprising that has happened a year ago in, uh, in June 29, uh, 2021. Well, you will see, of course, that the people of Swaziland have always fought against oppression, and that includes colonialism. We have noted about the, the workers' strikes in the 40s, but also even the, the, the struggles for the return of their land, even dating back to the early 20th century and the late 19th century. So the people of Swaziland have always continued to fight, to fight for the control of their land, for them to use their land for their own interests as the people. But when the the colonialists left. The colonialists were happy to give your freedom. You'd get your freedom. You get your flag. You get your elections. You get your parliament. You, are, you get your national anthem. But they control your economy. They control your policies. Uh, because neo means new. It's new colonialism. So it's still colonialism in a different format. And so they continued to control Swaziland. Uh, 
but now controlling it from Britain. And these struggles that we have seen, so therefore, are not just struggles against the, or the ruling autocracy. They are also struggles against the same neocolonialism that has been ruling Swaziland since 1968. So our economy uh, or our country is still seen as a source of raw material for, uh, for exportation. We are still seen as a source of labor power for the people to be exploited um, for the benefit not of even of Swazi companies, but for the benefit of foreign capital. You would see that in the textile industries, basically in the, all the industries, particularly as they manifest themselves in Matsapa and now having spread also to other towns in Matsapa. And you also see with the history of forestry in Swaziland, particularly uh, the Usutu, Usutu forest, um, which is one of the most important forests in the entire African continent, in fact. So you see that, again, it, with the people have always been seen as source of exploitation. And the land of the people of Southern is still used to exploit raw materials for exploitation. And now you have environmental disasters, which are never accounted for. And so the democratization that we're fighting for, now, all these struggles, firstly, all these struggles that have happened over the years, they have led to upheavals. So there have been high waves. You have the, the 1940s, you have the 60s, you also have the 70s uh, with the, the, the teachers' union, especially being the most active. Then you have the breadth of Pudemo being also an important aspect in terms of the, the big waves that have come through. And then you have the worker strikes in, the, in 1996 and 1997 with the 27 demands and, and all of that. And then you also have the strikes in the protests of, uh, against 4040, uh, the King's birthday and the independence in 2008. Mm-hmm. That's another, that was another high wave. But you also have the, the uprising of 2011, which was crushed brutally by the regime. So there's been these high waves and in 2021, we also had this other high wave, which came, it became the highest, actually, of all the world says that everybody or most people still believe that this was the time for change. It is happening. So the people you have, you would have seen that the people have been fighting, fighting for freedom, fighting for democracy. But one aspect that we need uh, for consciousness of the people to deepen is the importance of building a democracy, not just an issue of uh, electing people into positions of power, but a democracy that has the content of ownership of the country, ownership of the means of production by the people. And that means a, a, a truly sovereign state, a state that determines its policy independent of foreign influence independent of other uh, forces that would say Sweden must go through this route. So the development of the country in Sweden must rest with the people of Sweden. And that is the content of democracy that we need to build moving forward. That sounds so brilliant. 
And uh, obviously, we need something that will lift our people. We know the statistics, 70% of our people are living under the poverty line. And definitely, we need democracy, one that takes care or takes into consideration the needs of the masses, not a selected few, not power wielders, but the power uh, returning to the hands of the people. And that sounds like a socialist state. <laughs> Socialism well, is good. <laughs> yeah, I know they are always badly speaking capitalism and socialism. And to me, I know the effects of capitalism personally and also to our people and how it has ravaged our people, our communities. And they being unconscious, you don't realize that there is a force that is controlling you, which is not serving you. And there's some better way uh, to do this. 60 seconds, any parting shots before we go? What advice do you have to the youth of Swaziland? Some of them are beginning to be awake about politics. And um, what advice do you have for them? What should they do in order to, to take charge of their own destiny? 60 seconds. Firstly, the Communist Party of Swaziland stands firmly against the Dinkundla elections of 2023. And the Communist Party will organize the people to ensure that we don't only boycott the elections, but we also disrupt them, rendering the Tinkunla system ungovernable. So the Tinkunla regime must be unable to govern. That's where we all need to focus on. And particularly the young people of Swaziland, who are the majority, and indeed they are the majority even in the various organizations of people's power and the political parties out there. So we need to understand and the, the importance of the class struggle. It is important because unless and until we can wage a fully, fully-fledged class struggle, we'll be unable as the people because the working class is the majority. Therefore, that's why democracy must be in the hands of the, the, the majority who are the actual producers of the economy of Swaziland. Thank you so much. This has been a very enlightening. I'm sure anybody listening will uh, agree with me on that. The Swazi, the friends of the Swazi, the people of Africa, the, the Africans who are interested in seeing Africa liberated and going back to its uh, strength and contributing to the world as it has always done for millennia. Thank you. Have a very good night. I know it's night in South Africa. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been lovely.